I know we, uh, we just prayed, but um, I would love to start off before praying and, and praying. I've been saying over and over and over again for the last several weeks, for the last several months, that we want to be praying for the search of our new campus pastor. And I figured we would start today by doing that. Um, so if you guys would bow with me, I'd love to pray over you, pray over our church, and pray over the search for a new campus pastor. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you unworthy and resting in your abundance, your sufficient worthiness. Lord, we, we come here knowing that we are broken, that we are feeble, and that you are perfect. And not only are you perfect, but in your perfection, you love us. And so, Lord, we are grateful. We're thankful. Lord, we stand in awe of you, in awe of what you've done for us, in awe that we can even be here as testaments, as testimonies to your goodness and grace in our life, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in this church. Lord, we pray over, I want to pray over Tri-Village Church. Lord, you have done an incredible work from when it started to where we are now. Lord, you are continuing to work in us and you are continuing to work through us, Lord. And we know that we are not done because you are not done. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask, as we have been searching, as we have been praying, as we have been hoping for the person that you are going to bring to lead this campus, Lord, we want to pray over that person now. Lord, we don't know who it is, but we know that you know. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring the person who is going to, to lead us before you, Lord, in awe and adoration. We pray that you would be with this person and their family. We, Lord, we pray that you would bring this person soon. And Lord, if it isn't soon in our timing, we know that your timing doesn't always line up with ours. Um, but Lord, we pray that we would be patient in the waiting. And Lord, that we would be continuing to, to lean on you, to, to cling to you, to, to grab at you for life. And Lord, as we wait, as we pursue, as we continue to live out as followers of you, as disciples of you, Lord, that we'd be faithful to obey you, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that, we would love others. We'd love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord. Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in us, you'd be glorified through us, and Lord, that you would use this church as a united body. Lord, as, as Jesus prayed in the garden that we would be one as, as you, the Godhead, are one, Lord, I pray that we would reflect that unity and that we would go out as ambassadors sent for the purpose of your mission. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you all very much. Now, I got ahead of myself because if you have no idea who I am, um, I just came up here and started praying. Um, my name is Chad. I'm the interim campus pastor here, and I am so thankful to be with you this morning. It's actually a testament of God's grace that I'm with you this morning because I was on the winter retreat with our junior hires and high school students and came late last night to get here just to be with you all. So it is by God's grace that I am here. Um, we're going to find out together if I'm sane. So um, it's going to be fun. But um, I, I want to invite you as we continue to be moving on to pray on your own for the search of this campus pastor. I'm going to keep saying it and keep saying it. And you're going to be like, Chad, stop saying it. And I'm going to say no. We're going to keep saying it. So we're going to keep praying for that. Um, I'm really excited because I love the series that we are in right now. It is an amazing series. It's an incredible series. And a series called True Identity, where we're going section by section through the book of Ephesians. And looking at, well, as, as Paul writes out, this is, this is probably one of the most succinct, if not the most succinct, um, depictions, uh, explanations of what the gospel is and what it means for us in all of Scripture. And, and the beauties and realities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I love that we get to go through it. And so the, the reason that Paul actually wrote this letter is he wanted to teach the, the churches, not just the church of Ephesus, but the church of all, all of the churches in Asia Minor, 
what their true identity is. And that in Jesus Christ, we have an unshakable identity. And, and that same message that was for them is the same message we need to hear for us today. And so we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and guys, we're going to be talking about the grace of God. And what, what's interesting, and this wasn't in my notes, is as I was getting ready for this this week, um, I, I knew that I needed the grace of God. Like, I, I know that. We affirm that. Of course, we need the grace of God. We need God's grace every day. But I'm seeing even now how much I need God's grace. And that the message that he has for me to preach today, I feel insufficient to preach. And that is perfectly okay. In fact, I would say that that's perfect because it means that I'm not supplying on myself, but on the grace of God himself. That it's in him alone that we boast. It's him alone. That the grace that we have for salvation is also the grace that is sufficient for our lives. And so if you are with me, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And if you would stand and read with me, if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles on the rack in the back. We also will have the passage on the screen, but Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. If you're with me, say amen. amen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, he who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved." And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that not only when we come to your word, we see how insufficient we are, how, how deeply we, we need your, your mercy, your grace, your kindness upon us. So we don't only see our need for you in scripture, we see that you supply our need. Lord, that you give us yourself, you give us grace, you give us mercy, you show us kindness. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that this wouldn't just be something that we get excited about for this moment. Lord, this is transformational for every second, every moment of our lives. That we are in need of your grace and that in your abundant mercy and kindness, you give us your grace. Lord, I pray that what we go through today, Lord, that you would be moving, that your spirit would illuminate to us the realities, the truth of your word in our life and what it means for us understanding who we are. Lord, that we would know that our, our security, our, our identity rests in you, not in the things of this world. So Lord, I pray that as we go through this, whatever is from me, whatever is from this world, that you would protect us from it. But Lord, whatever is from you, that we would be open to it, that our minds would be open to, to thinking, to pondering the realities of your word, to seeing the truths of scripture and how it applies to our lives, Lord, and that our hearts would be transformed and changed so that we would live differently. We would live in alignment with who you are and who you've made us to be. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. I pray this in your name. Amen. 
I think, um, I think it's pretty safe to say that we all want to know what is real. We, w- we want to know what reality is. We want to know the facts. I don't think anyone here is going like, no, I actually love being lied to. It's so much fun. Um, and the way I think about this is think that you go to like a, a doctor's appointment, okay? You're at the doctor's appointment and as they're just doing their checks and everything, they, they go, oh, we need to check in on this. And, and so they're like, okay. And they run some tests and when they come back, your first thought isn't going to be, all right, cool. Did everything work out? Okay, cool. Well, I'm just going to go home. Your first thought is, okay, what were the results? What happened? Do I have a cold or do I have cancer? Like what's, what's going on here? You want to know what is real. You want to know what the facts are. And there's so many different things in, the, in this world of fake news, of constant lies, of, of different perceptions of what is real. We want to know what the truth is. And so it shouldn't be any different that we want to know what the truth is for us. The truth is for us as followers of Jesus. The truth is for us and our identity. But I think what's interesting is as much as we want to know what's real, as much as we want to know what is true, we are so quick to run from reality. As much as we want to know the facts, we are very quick to run to things that are not true. What do I mean by that? I mean that we, we tend to binge watch shows in a way of escapism, leaving, leading our lives to the lives of fake characters or other people. And we can't even interact well with the people who are sitting right next to us. We drown out the noise of the pressures of our life, whether it's through music or media, books or podcasts, whatever it is, to mask what we really have in our life to face. We doctor up our photos that we post on social media so that the people who look at us think that our lives are better than they really are, that we're happier than we really are, that we're healthier than we really are, that we're more together than we really are. We quickly go to our phones whenever things get uncomfortable. Have you ever done this where all of a sudden like there's a pause in the day and your first thing is, you know, like you're sitting at a line in the grocery store and it's like, oh no, I have to wait 37 seconds. We're so quick to distract ourselves from what is real. It is so second nature for us and we do this with our identity all the time. My point isn't here to come and talk about all the evils of technology and media because actually it isn't. I'm not saying that phones and media and all these things are bad. In fact, they aren't. The only thing that makes them bad is when we make them ultimate. When we look for them to give us what only God can give us. But what we do is we, we believe all these things that are told to us about who we are, about what our purpose in life is, about what we're supposed to do when they aren't true. We avoid reality and get swept up with all these lies and there's so much noise going on that it can be really hard to figure out where truth and where fiction connect. So the question for us today is what is real? What is true? Do I have a cold? Do I have cancer? And this passage that we are going to look at that we just read is arguably the most important passage. I would actually argue it is the most important passage in all of Scripture. It is the most important passage because it is the most succinct. It is the most clear. It is the most direct. It is the most deep passage about the realities of what the gospel is. You're not going to find a more succinct, a more direct, a more offensive passage about what the reality is of our condition and what the reality is of God's grace is in all of Scripture. 
J.D. Greer, when talking about this passage, says that this passage brings up two lies, two myths that we believe about evil. Are you ready for what these myths are? These myths that I, I know I've thought, and I'm sure that you've thought as well. The first one is, our main problem in the world is other people. Life would be so much different if people weren't there, you know? Like, the second one is that deep down, we're really not that bad. We're, we're fine. I'm fine. You're fine. But what we're going to unpack today is that that is so not true. And that the reality of our, of our sin is severe. That the significance of our sin actually shows the splendor of God's grace. So when we hear the word grace, we, we actually talk about grace a lot in church, don't we? You've probably heard the word grace over and over. And unfortunately, it can delude its, its significance. It can delude its, its severity on our hearts. But we can't understand the significance of Scripture without God's grace. We don't understand the story of the Bible if we don't understand grace. The Bible doesn't make sense apart from it. It's so important because the grace of God both frees us and devastates us. It frees us because in it we find immeasurable joy because it's not about our work, it's about Christ's finished work. But it devastates us because we have to understand the reality of our pride and that our best efforts, our good deeds, and our abilities have nothing to do with our salvation. We have to understand how messed up we really are to see how good God really is. So we're going to unpack this together today. That was a very long precursor to where we're going, where we're going to be looking at our helpless condition and our hopeful conclusion. So let's unpack our helpful condition. Now, I want you to know, like I said, that this is, this is really offensive, what Paul is saying here. And I want you to remember that this is Paul's words, okay? So um, we're just going to clear that up. So Paul says, as for you, or but you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. He says, as for you, because he has been setting up all of chapter one to display the immeasurable greatness of God, how amazing he is and what he lavishes on us in blessing over and over and over in our union with Christ. What's wild is Paul, if you are an English teacher, you would hate Paul because by this point, the first two chapters, by, by verse 10 of chapter two, Paul has only written four sentences. That's it. Talk about run on sentences. But he is showing how amazing God is. And then he goes, now that you know how amazing God is, let's look at you. Let's look at how you are. And let's look at what your real identity is. You don't think you're that bad? Just wait. You don't think you're that messed up? Oh, hold on. Paul's coming in hot. And this is what he says. Our helpless condition is this. One, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Two, we are enslaved to the ruler of this world. Three, we are by nature deserving of wrath. Whew. So we're going to unpack these. It says that we are dead. He says, notice how he says, you are dead. Not they are dead, the people standing next to you. He says, you, me, 
We are dead. It doesn't mean that we are spiritually wounded or injured or sick. We are dead. Sin is a disease. It's a parasite and it's an incurable disease. And it lives in the heart of every single human being. Every single human being. And so he goes on to say, not only are we dead, but we're dead in our transgressions and our sins. And I don't know, when when I was going through this, I know that I have always thought that transgressions and sins were synonymous, that they were kind of the same thing. And and maybe maybe you are are much smarter than I am, but uh, there's a difference. Paul is showing that there's actually a difference between transgressions and sins. And, And so what a transgression is, is it's like a misstep. It's a blundering It's the inability to walk straight. So as as I was praying through this and as I was thinking through, like how, what would be an image of a transgression? Like what does this look like? And I I was thinking about this. Like if you've ever seen someone, if you've ever watched someone, when I was a kid, I used to watch these these cop TV shows where they would like pull people over and stuff. I don't know why. Um, I was just, I had a terrible babysitter. And and so, um, so I'd watch these, and, and what, what I thought of is this moment where whenever you would see someone who is drunk or who is intoxicated, if you've ever seen one, maybe, maybe if you've seen people who are drunk, maybe you're the one who, you're like, I know what that's like. Um, but you see that, that this, this picture of someone who, who's drunk, the inability to walk in a straight line. Now, think about this for a second. What's kind of funny, unfortunately, is that you can see some people who like strain really hard and it's like, yeah, I'm walking a straight line. This is fantastic. But you can see the effort that's being put in just to do it. And in the end, they don't do it well. And then there's other people who just kind of fail, you know, and it mess. And I'm not saying that walking a straight line isn't easy for all of us because I struggle with that anyway. But, but what we see is that this picture is that We are so intoxicated in our own wickedness. We are drunk with sin that we are unable to walk in line with God's word. We are drunk with the the wickedness within us that we can't even obey God's command. We continually misstep. We are continually out of line. And we may be able to fake it for a little while, we may be able to show people that, no, no, I'm doing it. Look, I'm doing it. But in the end, we always miss step. We are dead in our transgressions. But then he also says that we are dead in our sins. And, and I think a lot of us think that sin is only an action. It's something that we do. I, I, yeah, I, oh man, I, I sinned today. I, I, I did all these things and these were my sins. And these weren't my sins, but these are my sins. Guys, sin isn't an action. It's a condition. It's not that we lie, steal, and hurt people, and that makes us somehow selfish, greedy, or jerks. We are selfish, greedy, and jerks, and because of that, we lie, steal, and hurt people. Sin is always selfish. Sin is always thinking of the self. Always. We are trying to protect ourselves. We are trying to indulge ourselves. We are trying to gratify ourselves. We are trying to make ourselves feel good. We are trying to affirm ourselves. Sin is knowing what is right and failing to do it. Sin is continually missing the mark. It's trying to reach but never quite grasping. It's choosing what's wrong. I think, I think sin is both choosing what's wrong apathetically. Well, if this life's all there is, then who cares? YOLO. Or it's, you know what? I'm going to get mine. You know, get rich or die trying. That's what life's all about. We are not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. We are spiritually dead, unable to walk straight, consumed with ourselves at the very core. And if you thought that was bad, we just got through verse one. There's more and it gets worse. So let's see how worse it gets. Remember, these are Paul's words. Um, He says that we are enslaved to the ruler of this world. And you might go, enslaved? I don't see that in here. Well, the word that Paul used is followed. We followed the, the ruler of the kingdom of the world. It denotes a downward motion. It's like the Pied Piper. We are rats walking along to our death, following the way of this world, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul says that we are sons and daughters of disobedience. You know another picture of this where, where Jesus is actually talking to, to Jews who are, who are saying, well, you know, my father's Abraham, so we're good. We're in. Like, I'm a good person. And he goes, no, you're not. And in, James, in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is the liar and the father of lies. Paul is reaffirming this. We are following the ruler of the kingdom of this world. And that is Satan. So not only are we dead in our sins and transgressions, but we are also following and enslaved to the ruler of the kingdom of this world. Pretty bad. I mean, I'm sorry that you guys came and you're like, I can't wait, and then I just let you down all but it gets worse. So we're just going to keep going. Um, we see that Paul goes on, and in verse 3, he says that we are by nature deserving of wrath. Or maybe if you read the ESV, it says, by nature, we are children of wrath. And you might go, why, why do we deserve wrath? Well, because of verse 1 and 2. Right. If you think that you're good, he's saying, no, you're not. And that our our affront is that we have rejected a holy God. We have rejected the God of the universe. We are actually born in sin. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you see where Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that sin entered in the world, that they wanted to be God themselves. They rejected God's goodness and instead pursued their own will. And in that, we read in Romans 5 that we too, we like Adam, we are born in sin. And it says this in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. And to put it in another way, in Romans chapter 3, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And do you know what the wages of sin is? Death. As I was thinking, we, we, I know that I have a hard time with the wrath of God. I'm not standing up here going, oh, as the preacher, like, oh, this is fine. I understand it. And I'm sure that you too have a hard time with God's wrath. And unfortunately, the wrath of God isn't something that's talked about a lot in church. Or it's the only thing that's talked about, depending on where you go. And so we want to do, I want to do a, a, a service because we can't understand the grace of God unless we understand our true condition. We can't understand God's mercy unless we understand that he is also a just God and that, there, that he is also a God of wrath. And w- when I think that we, we struggle with this idea of being children of wrath, we think like, children of wrath? Like that just seems like a terrible sentence. And, and we go, well, maybe, maybe we can even come to terms with the fact that I deserve wrath. 
But what about the, the other people in the world? What about those who are, quote-unquote, innocent? What about the, the quote-unquote, good people of the world? Well, this is what helped me think about it. And it actually, thank you, Winter Camp. It really helped <laughs> solidify this. I'm not saying that children are evil. That's not where I'm going with this. So, um, so as, I was, uh, as I was unpacking my, my bag on Friday night, um, I, I was in this like, corner that was poorly lit, which was terrifying in, at first anyway. And I was unpacking and getting my bed ready. And I, I was closing a curtain. And then this, like, this big black thing showed up. And, um, and it started crawling all over my bag. And... Um, and I didn't scream loud, but, but, um, but do you have any guess of what, what animal, what creature this was? Raccoon. Not a raccoon, not a cat, smaller. Think insect. Spider. It was a spider. Good job. Um, so I was thinking of spiders, right? What happens when you see a spider crawling along your wall, your floor, your bed? You jump and you smash it, <laughs> right? You just smash it. Um, <laughs> yeah, now you know why, why I freaked out a little bit. Um, okay, so that was, it was blacker than that. Yeah, wolf spider. Um, but so when I think of the fact that we, that we deserve wrath, I was thinking of spiders. Um, so the spider that came across my bag hadn't done anything to me other than freak me out. Um, and yet I still believe that it deserved destruction. I still believe that it deserved wrath. And, and now what, what you could argue is that, yeah, the spider hadn't done anything, but what if it had bitten me, right? Now, some spiders, if they bite you, it could even kill you. And, and so we, we believe that, that they deserve wrath because of their potential harm, but then also their actual harm, right? But then what happens if you don't kill a spider? It crawls into a little corner of your house and it makes a little family, and then you have hundreds, maybe even thousands of more spiders. Awful. Um, I don't know if you're one of the people here who's like, I love spiders. Like, okay, we, we should talk after this. But, um, but even if you do, you don't want them running around your house. You put them in like a little, a little cage thing, a little box, and you look at it. And if you're like my wife, you think every spider deserves the wrath uh, of, of a smash. Um, so that's my job as the husband is to smash spiders. But... When I think of this, we too, like spiders being infected with sin, have actual and potential harm. We too are deserving wrath by nature. It's who we are. That we think, oh, we're good. I'm sure the spider's like, you don't know, like these are the good spiders, right? But right, exactly. But we deserve wrath. And we don't deserve wrath because God just hates us. We deserve wrath because God is just. We deserve wrath because God is loving and that he can't allow sin to run rampant because what happens is it spreads. And next thing you know is you have a problem. You have an infestation. We, by nature, are children of wrath. And we deserve to be smashed. Just So the next time you see a spider and you're about to smash it, remember that that is what you deserve. But by God's grace, we receive life. You see, the wrath we deserve is separation from God. The wrath we deserve is hell. We deserve punishment for our transgressions, and it's the same as the wrath that Jesus Christ received on the cross. See, on the cross, he was beaten and killed in our place. He was crushed so we wouldn't have to be. 
He was forsaken by God so that we could be accepted by God. At the cross, he received our wrath. And we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, but before we we jump ahead to the good thing, we really have to sit in, we really have to own the reality of our condition, and it is helpless. But for some of you here, maybe, maybe throughout your life, you've kind of had a hard time buying into this and believing it and going, I don't know that's really that bad. Or you just skip ahead to verse 4 because verse 4 gets really good. And you just go, you bypass the sin part. And so maybe you're sitting here and you still think, but Chad, I'm good. Like, I'm one of the good guys. And, and we minimize our sin. We minimize our sin because we point fingers at other people. Well, I'm better than that guy. So clearly I'm good. I mean, I haven't done as many things as these people have. Like, they deserve judgment, but not me. And we don't believe what Paul's description of us really is, but we have to remember that he says you. Not them, you. Church, we need to accept this. We need to stop pretending that we're better off than we are, and we need to own and embrace the realities of our sin. And so maybe you go, okay, okay, I'm not as good as you say I am, whatever, whatever, but I do good things. Like, you know, like you can't deny that. Like there are good things that happen in my life. And then it loops us back. We go, well, if I do good things, then that must mean that I'm a good person. So I am a good person. And we justify our, our life by the good that we think we do. But what we see is that every good deed that happens in us is actually a gift of God's grace. Whether you believe in him or not, that he allows us to do good works. We read that because in, in the prophet Isaiah, he talks about that our good works are as good as filthy rags. And now in the original, filthy rags was even worse than filthy rags. It was repulsive. That the best we can give is the worst that we would want. We have to sit in this. We are sinful. We deserve wrath. And then we get to the most important conjunction in, in all of Scripture. The most important two words, but God. We, even though we are filthy, even though we are objects of destruction, even though we are headed full steam to the fires of hell, but God. And so it says this in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, sir. This is a gift. Yes, sir. It's not by your works that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. When you understand the, the, the utter depravity of our sin, it really magnifies the goodness of God's grace. That even though he, being just and loving, needs to eradicate sin. He chose to do it in a way that gives us life. So just as Paul's three things got worse and worse and worse, Paul flips the script and shows us that God's grace gets better and better and better. And so the three things that we see in our hopeful, our hopeful conclusion is that first, we are made alive with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places. 
So let's look at he made us alive with Christ. We went from being absolutely dead, contrasted to being made completely and totally alive. God died. Jesus Christ died so that we could live. Paul says that this is an act of grace, and grace is defined as undeserved favor freely bestowed on humanity by God. Undeserved favor freely bestowed on humanity by God, which basically is a simple way to say is God gives us what we don't deserve. We deserve destruction, but we receive pardon. We deserve death, but we receive life. We deserve separation, but we receive family. Not only is it an act of grace, but it's done out of the richness of his mercy. It's done out of the richness of his kindness and his great love. And this act of mercy, it's a character quality of God, which motivates him to refrain from inflicting punishment or pain on an offender or enemy, that's us, who is in his power. Another way to put it is mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Uh, one of my favorite verses in scripture shows the, both the richness of God's mercy and grace, and it's Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we don't deserve it, we receive grace. And not only do we not receive grace, we, receive what we, we don't receive what we do deserve, which is death. Even though we are dead, we receive life. So if you think that's good, it gets better. Not only do we receive life in Christ, we are raised up with Christ. What that means is that he has brought us to life in his resurrection. It means that not only do we have life in Christ, we have the ability to live in Christ. We have union with Christ. We can be united with him and we are clothed in his righteousness. So it's not about my works, it's about his finished work. We don't just become alive and have to figure it all out on ourselves. No, we are adopted as children and as heirs. Guys, I can, I can tell you that I often feel like a son of disobedience. I can go through my life, even though I know that I'm in Christ, and I can feel more like I am just wallowing in, in my own sin or regret, or I just feel like I'm, I'm far from God, and I'm sure that you feel that too. But what we find is that in Scripture, we can have confidence because the same God who made us alive is the same God who brought us to life, who's raised us up with Christ, and he is not finished with us. Amen. And so the work that he did to bring us to life is the same work that will bring us to completion. Yes, sir. So we are raised to life in Christ. And the picture of this that we have as the church is baptism. Mm -hmm. See, baptism, we don't, we don't baptize so that we are saved. We baptize because we, because we are saved. Amen. It's an act of obedience. We're called to go and baptize. Because we are dead in our sins and raised to life, that's what baptism is. It's an outward display of the inward transformation that actually took place in us. That as we go into the water, into the grave of death that we deserve, we have been raised to life, made alive in Christ, and now we get to be displaying his glory in our life. So church, I know we talked about getting baptized, and if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior— and you have not been baptized, I encourage you to be baptized. Not because it's going to save you, but because it's an act of obedience. See, when we become believers, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit already. You have a baptism, but the baptism we do is an act of obedience of a public profession of our faith. Guys, I was dead. I wasn't partially dead. I wasn't mostly dead. I was fully dead. And by God's grace, I have been made alive and raised up with Christ. 
if you think that's good, it gets better. Not only does God fix our past, our, our, he, not only does he, he, he take care of our present, he is securing our future. And so he seated us with him in the heavenly places. J.D. Greer writes it this way, In God's eyes, I am already seated in the seat of honor in the heavenly places. I'm seated in Jesus' seat as already secured. Do you know what kind of confidence that gives you? It, I am sure of heaven as Jesus himself is as sure of heaven. If you ever doubt, oh, what, 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 am I going to get there? It doesn't matter. Jesus got there. I am as sure as Jesus is of heaven. The gospel is not that God doesn't hear me based on how I lived this week. On what I've done. The gospel is that God hears me based on what Jesus has done in my place. In Christ, we've been made alive. We've been raised up with him. And we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This is amazing news. This is the best news we could ever hear. That we deserved death. We deserved destruction. But we received life. We received grace. We received mercy. We received purpose. And we receive a forever home. All by God's grace. Now you might be asking, and this is the right question, why? Why would God do that? Why would he give me grace if I don't deserve it? Why would he show me mercy if I'm that bad? Why would he stand in my place? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Paul actually answers that question. He gives us two reasons. First, he wants to display his grace to the world. Not just to us but to the entire universe. It is by grace that we have been saved. The purpose is to display his glory. The word this in verse 8 talks about, it connects both grace and faith together. They are both gifts of God. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. So you see that the only role that we have in our salvation is our faith, right? That we believe, we affirm that what Jesus says he did, he actually did. We, we affirm and believe that, that Jesus actually saved us and that we have the blessings that are promised to us, that we've been made alive, that we are raised with Christ, that we are seated with him. But what we see is that the faith that we have isn't even ours. Right. That both grace and faith are gifts of God. Amen. So if you think that faith is our work, think again. It's not that God did 99.99999% of the work and we did 0.001. He did 100% of the work. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, which are gifts of God so that no one can boast. So that I can't say, yeah, God did all of this, but look what I've done too. God's done all of this so that my life can display his grace. So we get to boast in Christ, not ourselves. So not only did he do it to display his grace, he did it for his pleasure. See, it says that we are his handiwork, his craftsmanship. It's not that he just kind of slopped us together. We are intricately and intentionally created by God. And he saved us for his pleasure. The, the picture I have, the image of this, is as I was reading different commentaries, is one, one commentator wrote it like this. It's the image of a sculptor. See, uh, different sculptors have been asked, like, you know, when they see a huge block of stone or, or marble and they go like, you know, how do you, how do you see the process of what you're going to make, of what you're going to sculpt out of this? You're like, well, I just chip away whatever isn't that thing. And God, too, is chipping away whatever isn't us. And so the, the commentator says it like this. In this incomplete state, we conclude incorrectly that this is all that there is. 
that we are now what we will ever be. You might say of your life, this isn't beautiful. This isn't a work of God, but God is not finished yet. You might reply, well, the big corner over here, it it doesn't look like it belongs, but God is not finished with you yet. This part is chipped and rough, but God is not finished with you yet. Well, this part over here hasn't even been touched. These sins in my life continue to persist, but God is not finished with you yet. This part needs to be sanded and smooth, but God is not finished with you yet. To every imperfection we see, the response is God is not finished with us yet. He won't, and it won't be there until he is finished. We will, be, we will be perfect and complete and flawless. A tribute to the glory of our creator. And the whole universe will see in our completion, they will see us and they will proclaim, glory be to God. This is what it means to be God's workmanship. But you must be patient because he's not finished with you yet. You've been made alive in Christ. You are risen to life with Christ. That there is a future for us and we have a purpose, but God is not finished with us yet. See, the grace of Christ that saves us is the same grace that supplies us and then will the grace that will secure us. God is not finished with us yet. It pleased God to bring us to life. It glorified God to raise us out of our mess. And it, God gets all the praise when we are put on display in his glory as a perfected work. We've gone from helpless to having a hopeful conclusion. And out of this hope, we work. We work because God has prepared in advance the work for us to do. We work because of the hope we have. We don't work to earn God's favor. We work because we have God's favor. We don't work to earn God's love. We work because we have God's love and it's what made us alive in him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things the Christian life is meant to do. It does not mean that we are meant to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world are just those who thought most of the next. The apostles who brought about on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire— The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We are created to do good works because our eyes are fixated, are focused on our future reality. We are prepared to do good work because this isn't our home. Church, do you know that you've been saved by grace? Do you know that it is an act of faith, that both are gifts of God, and that the work that we have is not about our boasting, but about proclaiming in the goodness of God and his salvation? To the degree that we understand that we are dead in our sin, to that same degree we will delight in the gift of God's grace. To the degree that we know that we have been saved by grace, to that same degree we will be ambassadors of grace into the world. To the degree that we know how helpless our condition is on earth, to that same degree we will focus on our hopeful conclusion in heaven. This is our identity, saved by grace.
to the glory of God and for his pleasure. Rest in that. Remind yourself of that. Don't lose sight of that. It is by grace you have been saved. This is our identity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the goodness, the richness of your grace. Lord, the grace that you lavish on us, the grace that you give us freely, not that we deserve it, not that we are worthy, but because you are worthy and in your love, you give us yourself. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to repent, quick to confess, quick to to expose our sin because it doesn't matter, Lord. What we do doesn't matter. What you've done is what matters. Lord, you knew the sin that would be present in our lives. You knew the the wrongs that we would do. You knew that even now in this moment, we come imperfect, that we come selfish, that we come corrupt, but you, by your grace, are making us new and that you are not finished with us yet. Lord, I want to pray for people here who are are hearing this for the first time and realizing that, that you are a God of grace, that we deserve destruction, but you give us grace because you love us. Lord, I pray that, that they would receive that they, would, that, they would love that, and by faith, they would profess you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that we all, that as, as, as your church, that we'd be united and that you would be glorified in the work that you've set, set ahead of us for us to do. We want to be obedient by your grace. Amen.